podcast what's good hey i hope this finds everybody doing well listen this is a powerful powerful conversation that i had with my good friend dwight carter around race and around equity and just around looking at things through a different lens i was working on a project and published the project it was a series of videos that we had created and the next day i got a text message from dwight and said what's wrong with this picture and i immediately knew that i had failed in this instance on my journey towards being a more equitable human being. And so I said, hey, let's have a conversation about this and the different topics that go with this. And maybe it's something that we can share so that other people can learn and grow and get better on their journey towards becoming more equitable human beings as well. If you don't know Dwight, he's one of the greatest human beings on the planet and one of the greatest educators on the planet as well. Thanks for listening, y'all. What's up, guys? This is PC, and this is your backstage pass to the Green Room Podcast Series. All right, so I am here today with one of my personal favorite people, one of my best friends, um, and somebody that I think the absolute world of, Dwight Carter. And Dwight is an administrator in Ohio. And Dwight, I just want you to start out with introducing yourself and a little bit of your educational history and where you work now and what you're all about. Yeah, what's going on, Renaissance Nation? It's uh, Dwight Carter, as as PC mentioned. Uh, I am an educator, uh, administrator in Columbus, Ohio area. Uh, this is my going into my 27th year in education. Uh, last year, I took a huge leap and jumped into career tech ed. So I'm an assistant director at Eastland Career Center and going into my second year uh, in career tech education. We currently do not have a renaissance program embedded in our district or the school. Um, but, you know, been infusing things here and there. Um, things obviously things shut down a little bit when we had, you know, had to shut down because of the pandemic. But that's given us a lot of time to really think about how do we want to strategically um, implement the, 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 the results formula um, and also align it with our PBS, PBIS program, which, we're start, that's, which is launching as well. So we have a lot of balls in the air, but, you know, we're not going to let a good crisis go to waste. I love it. I love it. That's exactly right. And Dwight is a Jocelyn Renaissance Hall of Fame educator as well. And so the purpose of this conversation today is Dwight and I, we're going to talk, we're going to have a serious discussion around racial issues and not just in the United States, but on a global scale. And so Dwight, I would like just for you to start this off with, talk about your experiences as a black man growing up in America and what are the biggest challenges that you've faced in your life because of that? Wow. Um, challenges. Uh, well, I'll say my first experience uh, of being called the N-word, I was probably a preteen and it was, I was called the N-word by a little, little white girl at, at Northland Mall. Northland Mall was a spot that we used to go to all the time. We catch the bus there with f- like very few, ch- few m- uh, dollars in our pocket, but we would go and just hang out and then we were going to buy some fat shoestring laces. That's when fat, fat laces were in back in the day with our suede pumas. So I'm going up the escalator and the store, what is now Macy's used to call, used to be called Lazarus. I'm going up the escalator and me and this little girl, we lock eyes. She's probably eight years old, maybe nine. I think I was 12, 13 years old. And so as we're, you know, we're passing each other, she, she looked me dead in the eye and whispered the word, the N word. And I was just shocked. And her mom was standing right behind, right behind her. She heard her. 
she just put her hand in her shoulder, turned around and kept on going. And I was just, I was numb for the rest of the day. And I was with my friends and I asked, they heard that they didn't, they didn't hear her say it. And it just shocked me how calm she said it. But I was more shocked about the mom's response, which showed me that that was a learned, learned behavior. And it was okay for her to say that. So that was my first outwardly um, racist experience. And then just through, just growing up, you know, my mom always raised us to, um, we have to work twice as hard to get half as much until we're proven. And then we have to prove that we've earned that. Like that was, so that was always embedded in me. So the work, work ethic came from that edict that my mom taught me. Um, and, we, you know, we had an experience, I had an experience through um, going to college, you know, I went to a majority, like 99% white uh, university. So I was exposed to things that I just wasn't aware of. Um, it was a liberal arts university, you know, a lot of like East Coast um, uh, students, wealth was uh, generational, and I did not come from that at all. And so there was, it was more of a culture shock. And uh, I became very aware of my blackness, became very aware of my ignorance in some regards, and very aware of how others viewed us as black men and black people. And it was, uh, I went through a period of just anger my, my very first year um, in college. But that quickly changed as I started to learn. I took it upon myself to learn more about myself and how to respond to and adjust to and quite frankly, um, code switch. And code switch is a concept that quite frankly, most white people don't have to deal with, don't have to even worry about. But we do because we're not always accepted as who we are. And so we have to learn how to code switch. We have to learn how to um, uh, almost relegate ourselves in order to, to have a seat at the table or even be invited close to the table. So that's one of the things you and I talk about quite a, t quite a bit is about you know, that seat at the table. And, and why is it something that we have to wait so long for the invitation to happen as opposed to the invitation just being there simply because we're good at what we do? hundred percent. And, and that leads into something else that I wanted you to talk about here today. And we've talked about this previously and I asked you the question as a white man, mm -hmm. what can I do to help? And part of your answer was, Phil, we need a seat at the table. Talk yeah. about that. What does that mean? How can we do better? How can I do better right. at making that happen? Right. I think by, by you simply asking the question, Phil, is that's, that's the start. That's, I think that's the, um, the seed that will bear fruit, um, an abundant, an abundant amount of fruit. And so, you know, I think about, you know, my experience, especially as a Jocelyn's educator, and I've been fortunate enough to have a seat at the table because one of my mentors created that seat for me, who was Dr. Keith Bell. Mm -hmm. Keith Bell has been intricately involved in Renaissance since probably its inception, if I'm not mistaken. And he was my administrator when I was a, a, a teacher at Gehanna, uh, Gehanna Lincoln High School. And so he's, you know, he's took me under his wing a long time ago. And my seat was given to me the day he invited me to a, it was like a, a, a meeting in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that's what I learned the intricacies of how Renaissance works and the planning behind it. And I was just floored by just the, the, the wealth of knowledge and wisdom around the table and the passion that 
um, those educators had for students, but also for climate and culture. Mm -hmm. And so so to be a part of that, I felt very um, excited and I was also very um, humbled by being there, but also question like, why aren't others at this table? And so now I look at it as now that I have a seat at the table um, and I'm in, you know, just this conversation, you know, in and of itself, I now am, I'm in a position of influence where, and I have a platform of influence where I can invite others to the table, but also want to uh, challenge just being invited and having a seat to like, let's just destroy the table altogether and build a bigger one so that there's um, equal access and opportunity for other voices to, to be around the table to help in the decision-making process, to be involved in the collaboration process so that more perspectives and more points of view are um, brought into the pro- brought into the, the process so that things are, can be made better and equitable for everyone. I love that. I love what you said about let's just knock the let's just knock the table down, right? And get it and get a bigger table there. Cause that's you know, I talk about blowing the box up. People say think outside the box. Let's blow the box up and, and let's start this thing from scratch and make it up to where it does. Yeah, where it's accommodating right. for anyone and everyone. You are the father of a just gorgeous little girl. <laughs> yeah. Talk about the challenges from a racial perspective because you have to have different conversations with her than what I have to have with my son. Right. Right. And so talk a little bit about that and the challenges that come along with being a parent of a child of color. She's very aware of the racial tension that's happening in our country right now, like keenly aware. And it scares me because she, she, she asks a lot of questions and she, and she, again, she's, she's, um, she can't think abstractly right now. So everything's concrete. So she'll make these concrete statements and it just, it, it challenges us to say, okay, how do we help her understand? It's, it's never all of one thing or all of one group. It's individual situations that happen and that create a story. So we're constantly talking to her about, um, again, access and opportunity. We're also talking to talk to her about um, what hatred means and what it looks like. We're also talking to her about what love, how, how to love others outside of the home and what that looks like and how to be open, but also cautious so that, um, you know, we want to protect our heart. So we're, you know, we're talking to her. We, we, we've purchased a number of books um, and we read, read, the, read to her because we, because be, Seriously, because we know that um, as a young black woman or as a young black girl growing into a young black woman over the course of time, she'll face very various, she'll face challenges regarding her hair, her vernacular, just her presence alone may be a threat to someone. So we talk about black love. We talk about what, you know, black hair and appreciating your black hair and your heritage and respecting your body and, and helping to establish boundaries um, in a way that you're comfortable that may make other people uncomfortable because they don't have to think about these things. So we read these books to her, she reads them and she'll point, she'll pull out, you know, books in the evening and say, Hey, daddy, read this. One of her favorite is, um, hair love. She loves that book mainly because it's a story of a a father and a daughter and the mother happens to be out of town and she wants to, um, she wants her hair done in a, you know, beautiful way. So she, she can be, you know, surprise her, her mom when she comes home. 
and it you know talks about the dad struggling struggling to style her hair in a way that she wants it so she um goes to the internet seeks help and then they work together to you know you know uh create this very stylish hairdo that makes the mom proud and the family you know they have a family loving moment all centered around her hair and it says my hair is love like my family is love and so that 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 story really resonates with gabby um and so we you know we we try to infuse stories literature um tv shows but honestly just and frankly conversations about her friend groups um conversations about her interactions and we ask every single day how the day go you know what you learn who'd you interact with you know how did you respond when that happened you know did you take responsibility for your actions you know so we have some really deep conversations so i think she's uh like i said she's she's grown into a, just a beautiful you know spiritually emotionally beautiful young woman and she doesn't have her dad wrapped around her finger at all right um, pc it her hand like she's she's got me like this <laughs> that's my girl she's daddy's girl We've talked about this before with, with our kids and you're not born hating someone else based on the color of their skin or right. sexual preference, any of those things. When do you see that developing and what are the factors that you think that influence those thoughts and beliefs? Um, so I'm going to lean back on a little bit of my uh, history as a middle school teacher um, years ago, back in the 90s, 94 through 97. Um, I was a middle school, uh, eighth grade middle school teacher, and I noticed um, in sixth grade, kids still loved school. They were run to school. They were run out of school. They were running to the classrooms or running to the, they ran everywhere they went. Just, that's just their energy. Seventh grade, clueless. They were just trying to figure out who they were, um, why they were, what they were supposed to do. And then eighth grade, they were really too cool for school, um, and which is an old cliche, but there was some truth to that. Um, so I, I, around fifth and sixth grade, I noticed clicks started to really occur centered on very defined characteristics, typically race and gender and class. And so prior to fifth grade, they played with anybody and everybody, you know, everybody's their friend. They can argue with their friend one day and they'd be the best friend the next minute and so forth and so on. Around mid fifth grade to the end of fifth grade, beginning of sixth grade, they really started to divide up based on the differences that they can see. And then it, it starts to sort of crystallize through seventh grade and it becomes really solid in eighth grade. And then ninth grade, it may change as the students become more athletic or get, get involved in more extracurricular activities with a diverse group of people. It starts to break up a little bit, but those foundational beliefs are embedded probably around, I'll say fifth grade. And so as educators, we have to be keenly aware of that. And I would say we have to expose kids to um, a variety of different uh, diverse thoughts, diverse curriculum, diverse activities, um, diverse readings, diverse images um, to show that it's not a uh, white doesn't mean it's better and black doesn't mean it's bad or non-conforming doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means it's different. And the more that we're comfortable as educators and the more that we know about how to go about doing that, the better off our students are gonna be. But also notice uh, on PC that Generation Alpha and Generation Z, which are our current students now, 
there's 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 like no boundaries when it comes to differences like they're so connected because of the the way they've been they've been raised and the exposure they've had through the use of social media and images so some of these things aren't um they may not even see them but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the world so we have to we have to at least expose them to what may exist in the world with the understanding that it may be foreign to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally does. And you talked about educators there and changing curriculum and the things that they expose their kiddos to in their classrooms for an educator that's watching this and wants to do better, wants to be better, but maybe doesn't know how to be better. What advice would you give to them? So I'm going to talk to two groups of educators. The first group is white educators. The second group is non-white or um, um, black indigenous people of color. So to white educators, take responsibility for the white white supremacy that exists in America. Just own it, not own it like possess it, but under own it as true as it as, as if it's true because it is. Every every part of our instit all of our institutions are based on white supremacy, and I say that because you don't have to think about your whiteness when it comes to applying for a job, applying um, uh, getting a loan for a home. Uh, applying for um, grad school or anything like you don't have to think about your whiteness. Whereas black indigenous people of color, we have to think about those things because we're always asked those questions. So I'll say, take that and own it, not as a threat, but as an opportunity to learn and grow. And so you can learn how to dismantle the, the embedded white supremacy that exists so that you can better understand and relate to your students of color, but also, confront the um the racism that exists when you see it when you do that you're now demonstrating that you're becoming anti-racist and an ally those will then break down the barriers that may exist and goes back to my one of my original points it breaks away breaks down the table altogether and builds up a new table and so what does that look like it looks like the micro messaging that exists uh, are there are there micro inequities in the way we um, treat and talk to students of color or students who are opposite gender of us? Do we call on students who only look like us, or do we call on students who are, are, are who look opposite of us, or do we throw questions at you know easier questions at people students of color? Or do we throw questions harder questions at you know various groups of people based on what we we want them to achieve better. So just, and all that is all, all those things that I just described are just like embedded, you know, unconscious bias that may exist. So own that, you know, there's several books that you can start off reading. Um, but mainly just listen, ask questions and listen without, um, and, and then embracing the defensiveness that may, that may come up in, in you to our, you know, uh, black indigenous people of color educators continue to fight. Um, use your voice. I think now more than ever, people are willing to listen. They want to listen um, and don't share out of emotion or a reaction. Don't share for reaction, share out of responsibility. Because now we're at a point, we're at a pivotal point in history where, where, where people are asking questions and they truly want to know. And so we have to be able to um, create the platform, not, not ask for the platform, but create the platform where voices are heard um, and then hold people accountable to what they say they're going to do. 
And so you mentioned reading books. Are there any books that you would suggest um, specifically for white educators to read that would help with this? Yeah, I can't remember the authors off the, top, authors off the top of my head, so forgive me for that. But I'll say Me and White Supremacy is a perfect book to start off with because it started off as a literally a 28-day challenge, anti-racist 28-day challenge on social media that then turned into like a PDF, that free download, downloadable PDF that then trans, transform, transferred into a, a book that has been amazing. So it's a, basically a 28-day uh, blueprint to um, become an anti-racist, but it's hard. I mean, I, I'm going through it now just to, you know, expose myself to what's out there. I mean, it's, there's some hard questions that the author asks people to really grapple with. Um, another one would be, um, so you want to be anti-racist, or um, a third one would be, um, uh, why are all the black kids sitting together in a cafeteria? That's an oldie but goodie. And then another one is The New Jim Crow by, I know the author there is Michelle Alexander. So those are some of the books that I would really uh, highlight as, you know, great starters for people to start examining, you know, white supremacy, um, and then what that looks like in education. Very cool. Yeah. So we talked to the educators. Now let's talk to student leaders. Yeah. And at a normal Renaissance conference, if we have 1,500 people there, 90 to 95% of them are white. Um, yeah. And that's out of those, uh, out of the adults and the student leaders, right? right? And so assuming that that to be true for the people that are watching this video, if there's a white young man, white young lady that is watching this as a student leader, what can they do to help with these issues? Uh, some of the things that I've already mentioned, the first thing to do is confront the racist comments when you hear them. Confront the racist behavior when you see them and be comfortable being uncomfortable when you do confront it. Cause you're going to, you're going to lose friends. Um, you may, you know, may upset some family members. Um, but you'll also, um, you'll be aligned with your values and there, and there's no substitution for that. And so, and, and people will come around because they, what you're, what you're, what you'll do students, if when you start confronting those things is you're creating boundaries for yourself to say, we don't talk that way here. We don't behave that way here which will then be reflective in the climate and the culture that you want. And it'll, you know, uh, it'll give you the confidence to step out and stand out and fight against that even more when you step out, step out of the walls of the school. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, ask questions of your, um, your non-white friends, like seriously ask questions, not out of, not out of um, joking or um, placating, but, true curiosity and understanding and empathy. And I would say um, the third thing would be is to um, invite your friends of color to the Renaissance Conference, because PC, you said it correctly, it's about 90, 90, 90 to 95% white. And so expose, expose it to other people. Um, welcome them into your friend group um, because you want to truly become friends with them. And that way, we can then again, destroy the table and create a whole new platform for a more diverse um, group that's reflective of where our country's going because our country is becoming more and more brown. But also think that browning of America is a, is a challenge to the status quo, which is, which is a reckoning of what we're going through right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. Last thing I want to ask you about is everybody, this is at the top of the list of issues that are going on right now. And it's one thing to tweet about it. It's one thing to talk about it. But what can we actually do? What can you do? What can I do to create meaningful change and progress moving forward? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that one. And for me, um, because I think I, I have a platform and because I do have a seat, um, I make it a point. Every conference I go to, I bring somebody along. Um, I some, somehow, some way identify somebody who's there by themselves. They're just, they're, lear they're learning about it. And I come with me, you know, we're, we're hanging out, we're talking, we connect and we become friends or at least we become colleagues. Um, and that has been extremely helpful. I mean, I've been doing that, you know, since attending the Renaissance conferences and when I do it, when I go to the national principles conference and I still stay connected with these individuals that I've met over the last eight to 10, 12 years by doing just that. Um, so, but I, I, I'm still challenging myself to do more because again, I have, I have access and opportunity. So why not? Why aren't there more people that look like me at the table? So I'm owning that one. Okay, I'm owning that one. Um, in terms of others, specific things goes back to ask questions and truly seek to understand. Yeah. Seek to understand and, and grapple with why you feel, why you may feel the way you do when you hear these things. Because that's telling you something else. That's telling you something that's going on. Wrestle with that. Don't look for the quick fix because there isn't one. This is, this is hard work, it's long work, and we have to commit to it for the long haul. So apply the five R's. Think about the results that you want. What do you respect? Does, is that known? Um, what, what do you, are you reinforcing and recognizing the behaviors that you wanna see within yourself? And then are you re rewarding that when you, when you are making that growth and those changes and you see people around you changing, are you rewarding it? Not with something tangible, but something intangible such as, you know, stronger friendships, then celebrate the results that you're getting and just keep repeating that process. Yeah. Well, Dwight, I just want to say thank you for being willing to join us and to have this conversation. Um, it helps me personally to be able to grow and I always appreciate you pushing me and um, opening my eyes to areas where I'm not doing as well as, as what I could. And I, but I think that as you've alluded to, that's how this happens is we need to have these friendships and relationships enough to where we can have open conversations with one another. And you can say, Hey, like what's the common thread that you're seeing here. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I, as soon as I saw, you know, I knew exactly where it was going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's something that I'm trying to grow and I'm trying to do better. And I know that the people that are watching this video are, are in the same boat. And so I just can't thank you enough for, providing this insight and this wisdom because a lot of times again the hardest part is how do we start that conversation how do we open the door to, because it's an uncomfortable conversation yes. and it's an intimidating conversation especially from a white person's perspective a lot of times we don't know how do I ask a Dwight Carter a question about racial issues and so I just want to say thank you and I like you know what I think about you man uh, you, you're an unbelievable person unbelievable husband unbelievable father and I'm just grateful for your time and I'm grateful for your friendship appreciate you PC and I will say this the reason why I sent that to you is because I knew that you would you wouldn't take it take offense to it I, I, I've our relationship is such that I can bring this up and he can see it and then we can have a conversation about it and neither one of us will get upset or mad or upset. It's just, or de defensive. It's like a reflective moment. 
Yep. And so I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about openness, honesty, authenticity, and relationships. The more we build the relationships, those, those are bridges to better understanding. So yep. I appreciate you, man. You, again, you know how I feel about you and your whole family. So nothing but love. Well, thanks, Dwight. Love you, brother. Love you too. Take care, man. Guys, you've been listening to the Green Room Podcast Series. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy the podcast, if you do me a huge favor, if you would rate it, subscribe to it, and then share it with a fellow educator that you think might enjoy it as well. Chase your dreams, kids. Uh-huh.